Hello and welcome to Fatal Femmes, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will focus on a mystery, suspense, or thriller written by or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Kenny-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. In this episode, we will look at the 1950 movie, Woman on the Run, based on the short story, Man on the Run, by Sylvia Tate, directed by Norman Foster and starring Anne Sheridan and Dennis O'Keefe. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A woman searches for her husband who has run off after witnessing a mob hit. We want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. The murderer will be revealed through the course of this discussion, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. Hey, happy 2019, everyone. I'm very excited today because I am here with my good friend, Erica Long, host of the Magic Lantern podcast. Hi, everybody, and thanks for having me, Laura. I'm very excited for you to be on this. I've been wanting you to be a guest for a while, so yay! Thank you! I am sad to say that Lacey is not with us today because she has laryngitis. When I saw her, because she can't actually talk, I didn't think that her hand signals would add much to our discussion today. So she'll be back with us for our next episode. She will be missed in this one, definitely. Did she get a chance to watch the movie, or was she so sick that she couldn't get to it? She didn't really do much over this holiday. So no, she didn't get to watch it, unfortunately. But she has my DVD copy, so she can watch it. And also, as of this recording, you can stream this on Amazon Prime. Awesome, because there's also the YouTube version, because it fell into the public domain a long time ago, and so it looks terrible on YouTube. The opportunity to have a really nice-looking version is great. So Lacey will have to go watch the movie and then listen to this episode. Yes. On our last episode, I said that we had a big announcement, and I am very happy to announce that for my birthday present, Lacey and I will be attending the Film Noir Festival in San Francisco at the end of the month. And I'm so, so ex- excited. I'm so jealous. I actually found out about the festival because of you and Cole. We attend the abbreviated version here in Austin every year. We do. That's Noir City, the Austin version. It plays all over the country. So we also have the very distinct pleasure. Now you're going to get to be able to do this as well, which is to hang out with Eddie Muller, the czar of noir, the man who is the president of the Noir City Foundation, who makes all of this possible. All of this viewing comes from all of his work. So you get to see him. You get to ask questions, you get to hang out, give him a hug. He is a prince among men. I I met him last year because of you guys, and he was so nice. Yeah, he's fantastic. So I'm very, very excited about that. San Francisco is kind of a dream trip for me, so if y'all have any recommendations on what I should do while I'm there, or if you've never heard of the Noir City Festival, I recommend that you check it out and let me know if you have any tips on things for me to do. And one thing I would definitely recommend is check out one of the special features on the Flickr Alley version of Woman on the Run because they go through the different locations, many of which are still there today. So you can see a lot of this cool stuff. That is one thing that I love to do on trips is find locations from films and TV shows that I love and go see them. Erica, again, thank you for being with us, and tell us a little bit about yourself and about the Magic Lantern. Absolutely. So I am Erica Long, and I am one of the hosts, along with my husband, Cole Lane, of the Magic Lantern podcast. We're also a film podcast, and, well, I say also, you cover films and books and many other things, so I don't mean to pigeonhole you guys, but you're a film lover, as am I. And that's the place that we started our podcast. We talk about the films we love and the things we love about them. We cover all sorts of genres from art house to French New Wave to trash to whatever. There's something for everybody, hopefully. Yeah, there's so many movies that I've seen or heard about because of Cole and Erica that never would have come on my radar in any way. We also do a monthly film screening, and I go to as many of those as I can, and I've seen some really amazing things and some really bizarre things and some things that you said trash but trash in a good way well i don't think there's a negative connotation to trash personally but yeah some crazy perverse weirdo gonzo made for twenty dollars 
who knows, whatever, we're going to show all of those things. And I'm so glad you mentioned our movie night. That is another reason why we do what we do is to get people excited about something that you might not have heard about before. Exactly why you do your show too. Thank you for all of that. And thank you for recommending this to me. Back when I first started talking about this podcast a year, year and a half ago, it seems like it's been forever now. This was one that you said, check it out. Yes. And it took me a little while. I think the first time I watched it was just a few months ago. And it was one of those kind of crappy um, versions of it. But it just really struck me, this character and how focused on this woman and her story this movie is, that I knew that it was one that we had to cover at some point. And then as a Christmas present to myself, I bought the Blu-ray version with all the special features and the beautiful quality and everything. So thank you. My pleasure. So how did you first hear about this movie or why did you decide to watch it? Like you, I am a gigantic film noir fan and that came directly from my mom, really. My mom is the biggest movie lover that I know outside of my husband. And so from a very young age, she taught me everything she knew. We watched everything in the world. And film noir is one of those things that appeals to me for a number of different reasons. I like darkness. I want to explore the back alleys. I love that period in time. I love that it can be an actually very all-encompassing genre, not just what you think of as a tough guy smoking a cigarette with a Venetian blind outline behind him. There's so many more facets to it. One of those being really interesting roles for women. Now, those can of course fall into some different categories. It can be the femme fatale, which there's nothing wrong with that, or the wife and the mother, you know, the virgin and the whore, whatever. But there's a lot more opportunity out there. And especially around that time frame, we're talking anywhere from the 30s up through the 60s into neo-noir that we see these days. Women are still pushing the boundaries within story, within their role, within performance. So I think there is a lot to be had. Yeah, that is one of the things that while we are making progress, it still is an issue for women of being the young love interest or the mom. And there's not a lot that falls in there. But thankfully, especially in this last year, we've started to see a lot of growth in that. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of remakes a lot of times. I could see this story being modernized and adapted into something very interesting. Mm, I see where you're going with that. And I agree that would be a really interesting thing to see. I also want to encourage people, as do you, to go explore the things that they didn't even know they didn't know existed. There are films like this around, plenty of interesting women's roles, but we just don't maybe know about them. They might have fallen into the public domain, as we mentioned. They could have just been much smaller. So I'm one of those folks who has always followed lists and recommendations and connections. So find those things that you like and go down those rabbit holes to find those other little missing gems. And thanks again to Eddie Muller, for bringing this one to my attention. Yeah, I love that. I've seen some really terrible things before, you know, going, oh, I love this actor or this director. Oh, let me watch all their stuff. But then I've seen some really amazing things too that I never would have heard of if I hadn't have just gone, okay, I'm going to follow this person and where it leads. Definitely, because it can lead to crazy places and wonderful places. And you may find your next favorite thing somehow. So this movie almost didn't exist. One of the special features on the DVD was Eddie talking about the restoration of this movie and the fact that the last print of it burned up in a fire. And while they were trying to figure out a way to restore it, they borrowed from the British Film Institute the copy that they had, but it didn't have any sound with it. It was missing some pieces. And so he had actually made an illegal copy of it. (laughs) Thanks, Eddie. So he's our legal hero. (laughs) Through those two, they were able to restore this film because otherwise it would have been lost. And it's one of those that I think that would have been a great tragedy because it is so good. And one thing that Lacey and I love are simple stories. And this is such a simple story. It's a woman trying to find her husband. That's basically what it boils down to. And even though, you know, it is a little more complex than that, it's still very simple, the journey that they go through and how they end up at the end. And I'm sure we're going to get into those hidden complexities too, finding herself. We're talking about nothing less than 
marriage here, which is a big deal. It is treated with gravitas and respect in the film. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Anne Sheridan real quick because we do focus on the women that made these stories real. She was born in Texas. I didn't yes, know that. didn't. So that's really cool. She was born on February 21st, 1915 and died January 21st, 1967. I think that's crazy that she died just a month before her birthday. She died way too young and oddly enough some fun facts i'll throw out throughout the course of this episode she and robert keith and dennis o'keefe all died within a few years of each other it's quite odd that we lost so many folks in that small span wow it's always strange to me how things like that seem to it work. does yeah now were you an ann sheridan fan before this film i haven't seen many of her movies i have seen her in the man who came to dinner which was a screening that y'all did. I was familiar with the play, but I hadn't seen the movie before you showed it to me. When I was looking through her list of films, nothing rang a bell. So I might have seen something, you know, like on Years Turner ago. Classic Movies, sure. or, but I, nothing's sticking out to me. I am a huge Anne Sheridan fan, so I hope that everybody goes out and checks out her stuff. I'm going to pump really hard for a couple of my favorites. You mentioned the top, The Man Who Came to Dinner. She's absolutely wonderful in that. I also loved her in George Washington's Slept Here. She's with Jack Benny in that. That is an amazing comedy. Absolutely wonderful. And then also, she has some great dramatic roles, too. King's Row. She's got another great comedy, I Was a Male War Bride with Cary Grant. Anne Sheridan never put a foot wrong, in my humble opinion. I think it was interesting that at the time of this movie, she was 34, and she was already too old, and they were just giving her bit parts. So she actually paid a lot of money to get out of her contract so that she could go start making more independent films like this one. And she considered moving to another country so she could try to get roles, not fond of the term, like meaty roles, but something mm -hmm. with a little more substance. She had been living and working at least part-time in Mexico for a number of years before this. And that like a lot of the American film community gave her an opportunity to stretch herself. And that's probably also how she came to know the director, Norman Foster. He had done the same thing. He had been directing films in Mexico, really great ones, really well-respected and big box office films for a number of years as well. That community was very tight-knit. One thing that I thought was really interesting was that she was studying to be a teacher and her sister sent in a picture of her to a beauty pageant and that's how she ended up getting into acting. She won a bit part on a movie. And this film comes about 10 years after the point when Warner Brothers announced that she was voted by a committee of 25 men as the actress with the most oomph in America. She was forever known as the oomph girl. They make a joke about it in The Man Who Came to Dinner. She hated that. I can understand that. Oh yeah. It also allowed her some cachet, you know, sadly enough. But I think that for a long time she was more seen for her very prominent physical beauty. There's no denying she was a beautiful, beautiful woman. And less for her talent. Though she was still given some really excellent parts. You mentioned though that age. That being such a big deal. I think that that is the best part of her in this film. She looks her age, and I don't mean that in any sort of negative or positive way. She simply looks like a normal human being who is aged to that point. We can see some lines in her face, especially in that black and white photography. I love that. This becomes a more believable person in this role. She looks slightly more weary, or she's able to portray that. I'm assuming that's what she was feeling at the time, too. This was a difficult process. And she absolutely rose to the occasion. She was brought on as an uncredited co-producer. She put her money into this. She was absolutely instrumental in hiring a number of the other cast members, especially in smaller parts, and the crew. In addition to starring in this, she also was a producer, which at that time, not a lot of women got to do. Absolutely. I was trying to look up some statistics and the Producers Guild as we know it now didn't really come into being formally until 1962. So there isn't a lot out there, but I couldn't locate any other prominent examples of credited or uncredited women producers. There was a little bit more in the directing side. From the 1890s to the 1940s, under 50 films around the world 
were directed by women. That's total. It's more like about 25. What was that time period? 1890s to the 1940s. Right. Jeez. So it's a very, very small number. We can find some different uh, ways to look at that because there were shorter films made by women. Mabel Norman was one of those. Then from the 1950s to the 1960s, it was only 17 films. So those opportunities had gone down. And part of that was the advent of sound because movies just became a huge business. So women were forced out of directing and producing roles. But then, just like with film noir, the rise of the independent studio, the independent distributor came about. And that is, in this instance, Fidelity Pictures. And so that's how she got that opportunity. She did so much work with Norman Foster. It was just a given. Now, I know you have a background in theater. Do you have much of a background in film work? I do. I Well, I do and I don't. I briefly went to film school because for the majority of my life, my younger years, I thought that I wanted to be a director. And so I chased that, started with theater first. I got into film. I realized that that really wasn't my dream anymore. So I changed over. So really, I am definitely a film lover more than anything else. But you were able to see through film school kind of what that world is like. And... Definitely, yeah. Now, not to continue to bring the room down. I'm going to give you a big bright spot of somebody to go check out if you didn't know about her already. And that is the actress turned director, continued to be an actress, Ida Lupino. She is a huge exception during this period. She is one of those people making one of or many of those 17 films during that period especially the great film noir, The Hitchhiker. Which is one that we will be covering later in this year. She also directed one of my sister's favorite films, The Trouble with Angels, starring Haley Mills. Yes, very fun. Very fun. She was wonderful. Go check out all of her acting work and then find all of these films that she directed that you probably didn't know she had directed. And quite a few of them are on Amazon Prime right now. I'm sure the quality isn't great, but it is a way to at least be able to see these. I know a lot of them are in my lineup of things to watch. Great. Let's actually get into the movie. We open, it's a dark night, and there are two people in a car talking. We start, you know, it starts off with a bang. Our murder is right off the bat. Danny Boy, who we don't get to see, kills... That's you know Joe's name? Yeah, that's okay. Joe Gordon, played by Tom Dillon. He is telling Danny Boy that he knows that he stole this money. He'll happily split it with him. Give him 15 of the 20,000 and Danny Boy can take five. Which Danny Boy doesn't seem too happy about this arrangement and proceeds to shoot him. The larger picture is that Joe was set to testify against the mob. So this is just getting a witness out of the way. So it really doesn't have much to do with the money. No, I don't think so. Okay. I, I mean, I yes, in terms of them being mobsters, for sure. But yeah, I think it's a little bit less about that and more about I've got a paid contract to do this. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, this is saving me from something else. A convenient getting a person out of the way. This character kind of gets two birds with one stone, yeah. so to speak. Now, he's going to try to get another one because we see in this amazing San Francisco backdrop, actually this first part was Los Angeles doubling for San Francisco, but our film takes place in San Francisco. We see a man walking his dog very late at night. He becomes an unfortunate witness to this murder. The shooter sees him and, most importantly, Frank, who is the man walking the dog, sees the shooter. So he can identify this guy. He tells the police he can identify him. One thing that I really love is the killer takes a shot at him but shoots his shadow. Yeah. I think that is such a cool concept. I haven't really seen that used in anything else before. So if he had have actually been standing there, he would have hit him. Yeah, it's the only thing that saved him was the shadow. And we have to talk about the dog, because this is a wonderful dog. This is Rembrandt. He was played by five different dogs, all of whom had some special trick or thing that they were able to do. But yeah, this is an awesome dog movie, too. And spoiler alert, nothing happens to the dog. No, the dog's totally fine. This is a very safe dog, other than he doesn't get his dinner. And that's right. sad for him. But he saves the day a couple of times here. And he can walk himself by carrying his leash in his mouth. Yeah. So, so they are talking to Frank. 
They ask about if he's married. He says, married in a way. Yeah, so we know already, um, before we even meet Eleanor, his wife, we're thinking things are not great, clearly. We're predisposed to probably not like her because of the way that he acts. And we're predisposed, at least to my mind, to not really like him that much if he is talking this way about his marriage. So the detective says, well, you're either married or you're not. Go get his wife. It's about two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning at this point. I want to mention the head cop, Ferris, is played by the great Robert Keith, who was in many, many, many films. One of my favorite, probably the first thing that I saw him in was Guys and Dolls when I was a kid. Yeah. So he's a musical man, too. He's wonderful. He was in the stage. He was a playwright. He's an actor. He's the father of Brian Keith. Speaking of the Haley Mills connection that you may know from The Parent Trap, along with many other films. Wow, I did not know that. He was also married to Peg Entwistle, who is known for committing suicide off of the Hollywood sign. She's one of the most famous suicides in history, sadly. She was also an actress. I just heard about that today. Wow. Wow, there's a lot of interesting connections. Yeah. While Frank is talking to these detectives, they tell him that they will protect him. And he says, like, you protected the other guy? Yeah, he's got a point. Of course, too, the other guy did seek out these gangsters to talk to. He did. He got himself in that situation, but still. But still, yeah. There's a lot of things that make me kind of question these police officers throughout the course of this movie as not necessarily having everyone's best interest at heart. Right. Yes. So he decides that his best course of action is to get out of this situation. He sees his first opportunity to take it on the lamb, and he does. He leaves poor Rembrandt all by himself. And it is about this moment when they show up with Eleanor, who of course is not pleased to be drug out in the middle of the night, but they said they had to prove that he actually had a wife. He's gone, dog shows up, they're asking her all these questions, and she's saying things like, I don't know who his friends are. I don't know what he's doing. She's not initially very concerned that he was a witness to a crime. She is more concerned when she realized there was shooting involved. He narrowly escaped being killed. But yet, she gets that opportunity to say, just like him, always running away from everything. Clearly, yeah, there's some strain. One thing that I was wondering about Are they still living together? Yes. Okay. Definitely. I wasn't sure, and there didn't seem to be a lot of evidence of him other than his studio. I think they're living in the same place separately. That's how it strikes me. I love mentioning the apartment, how much we see all of these surreptitious glances of Eleanor, photos that he's taken pictures, portraits that he's done of her. So she's all over the apartment, but like you mentioned, he's not. It's just the evidence of his work, her as seen through him. And that's one thing that the police ask her too. Don't you have any pictures of your husband? And she says, no, he doesn't like having his picture taken. They ask, did he do a self-portrait? And she said, no, he doesn't like himself that much. So there's a lot of very telling things about him just in this little bit of showing the apartment. Now, Even though Eleanor is really a sassy person, she's got the wisecracks for sure. It could also just be me giving the script a little bit more credit, but I don't think that this is treated like a joke throughout. It's reflected in other people that they see that this is a sad state of affairs. This isn't something we aspire to. It's not treated as, oh, ha-ha, their marriage is in trouble. It's not the Bickersons, thankfully, because I am a person who absolutely hates to see negative portrayals of marriage played for fun or wisecracks. I think that's lazy and crappy. While she's talking about his art and how they got married, you get the sense that she's not a sentimental person at all, which is an interesting portrayal because, you know, it's always women and their sentiment and um, how romantic they are. And you don't get that from her, but you get that there was love and caring between them. I've never been married but everybody that I know that has talks about, you know, there's ups and downs. And I mean, just cohabitating with any person is going to have its own issues. Marriage is difficult. I'm not going to lie to you. I am married. I can tell you <laughs> that it is difficult. It's hard living with someone day after day and difficult things happen to you. 
you do things that aren't so great all the time. You're not always your best self. I think at this point in their marriage, Eleanor has allowed that she isn't continuing to be her best self. I don't mean that in some sort of rah-rah Oprah sort of way. It's just that she's fallen into a pattern and has not taken care of this thing that she helped to create. I can also at the same time, because she does this work for me, I can understand where she's coming from. She talks about all the moves that they have. She talks about through the course of the film, his stubbornness, that there are times when he could have succeeded making money for them, but he didn't. It would have been a terrible compromise for him. He's not there to tell us. We again have to see him reflected by what she tells us. So is he some sort of great artiste with high sensibilities? Is he somewhere in between a man? And that person, is he trying to do the best that he can in the way that makes sense to him, truly what he believes in? They're just two people who have probably gotten off track. I also really like, she is our titular woman on the run, changed from man on the run. It was a really interesting choice to do that. And it's a little bit against her will. She's angry with him that he's taken off. And that's for a number of reasons. We'll learn throughout the film exactly why. But she doesn't really want to have to go after him. He's put her in a position that she doesn't want to be in. But like you said earlier, when she finds out that he was shot at, you see it on her face, you yes. hear it in her voice, that this is a big deal and she understands how serious it is. Yeah. And so when he calls to ask her for something and she hears the police say that they're tracing the call, she tells him, you better hang up. The police are tracing this call. So she helps him get away. Yeah, I think she also understands how serious this is, as he did, that they probably aren't the best people to protect him. Maybe he does just need to get away. Not necessarily get away from me, but just get away for his own safety. And that was one of the things when I was reading about this. So many of the descriptions or things was talking about how he's running away from her. Yeah. And I never got that at all. I didn't either. I think that the director does a great job of communicating those things. I mentioned all of these portraits that we see of her all throughout, the way that they're living, the choices that he does make. We get that opposite side with the police treating her with disdain that this is the wife. You know, this is no this is no wife that I want. You call yourself a wife, all of this stuff. And again, it's to her and the script and the director to show us how they got to that point. But I totally agree. I think it's lazy to say he is trying to get away from her. It's all trying to get back to her. There's a line that the police have that I made a note of when I was watching it where they say, no wonder so many men are bachelors. But I love it because it's contrasted later by the bartender who said that he realized that Frank wouldn't be an easy person to live with. Absolutely. I love that moment. That is so wonderful. It's a, it's a multidimensional story in that respect. So she's been questioned by the police. They've searched the apartment. They've talked a lot about his art and the different periods they've gone through. He's never put his art out there. As an artist and somebody who knows a lot of artists, I know that feeling of insecurity of putting yourself out there, but I also know watching somebody that you know could be great and being frustrated about them not doing something. So there, there's a lot there yes. to unpack from both of those characters. The newspaper men show up because, of course, this is big news, and they're all sent away saying that they're not going to get any information. They want to keep him as quiet as possible so that they can try to keep him alive, which something they do later kind of contrasts. And we are introduced first to Leggett. Yes. Now, the cops know him by name, by sight. He's Leggett the newspaper man. And he is asking right away about the witness and the wife. Also, they're not giving this information up. But of course, he's not going to go away that easily. And that is Dennis O'Keefe, you mentioned before. He had made that transition from more of light leading man roles because he's a handsome guy and he's super talented into this more hard-boiled tough guy. This is what film noir gives you the option to do, like the great Dan Duryea as well. Eleanor decides that she is going to go find her husband and there's police everywhere. So she climbs out of 
the skylight in the kitchen. And in a very safe moment where she puts a chair up on a table, it falls out from under her, like if the newspaper man is there and is able to help pull her up, all the while she's saying, I don't need your help. I love her. Yeah. (laughs) He shows her how to get past the police by walking across this board, across the rooftops. And she still manages to be smarter and throws him off by kicking the board away. Ha ha, jokes on you. I love it so much. She is just so strong and sassy and doesn't take anything and can give it right back to any of these guys. Now they've struck a deal. She will give him the story of everything that happened from Frank's point of view if he can help her get away. And he's going to give her money for this. So this is important. She's going to give that money to Frank so that he can be secure. Now we've been talking about these great wisecracks, this interesting dialogue that gives us different places to go. And I've got a couple of notes about that. Now, probably the shooting script wasn't really what we ended up seeing. And that's because a lot of people involved were also writers. Norman Foster was also a writer. Anne Sheridan was well known for improvising her dialogue, especially in I Was a Male War Bride with Cary Grant. Dennis O'Keefe and Robert Keefe were also writers. Dennis O'Keefe was a novelist. He was a screenwriter as well. Robert Keefe wrote plays. They worked on their own scripts too. So it's very possible that they contributed a lot to this story, which is pretty dang awesome. And then we've also got the de facto screenwriter, and that was Alan Campbell. He was no slouch either. He was very well known as a professional craftsman. He was married for many years to Dorothy Parker. You gotta be on your toes in that kind of a marriage. They were professional partners as well, and I would also hazard a guess that he probably drew on that marriage to contribute to this story as well. So they've struck this deal. They go to their one of their favorite restaurants, the Oriental Gardens. This is the Oriental Roof Garden. Oriental Roof Garden, yes. Yeah, a really interesting club, and I want to mention two of the people that we meet here, and that's Sammy and Susie. Sammy was played by Victor Senyang, and Susie was played by Reiko Sato, who actually was discovered by Anne Sheridan. I love their characters. They, they're very talented. You can see from the dance sequences that they're doing. And she has to be classically trained because the warm-ups that she's doing are just amazing. <laughs> she was a well-known dancer at the time. She went on to be in other films. Um, and Victor Young had been an actor for a very long time, too. I really like that there's this mix of a mockery of these Asian stereotypes, especially in the makeup that we first see that Sammy has on, plus the more modern vaudeville elements to it. But then the best part is totally modern American slang. Yes, that was one thing that I did appreciate with this movie is that they had real characters and weren't trying to make a caricature of anyone. They're constantly upending our expectations. It's really cool that way. And so we find out that this is a place that they go to often. They are trying to get a message to Eleanor. They bring it over in the menu. She just isn't getting it. I disagree with you. Okay. Yeah. Sammy knows that this is important information that he is giving to Eleanor that nobody else should hear about. This is that a letter is going to be waiting for you in the morning at the department store where Frank works. He doesn't need Leggett seeing it. She sees this as well. So she sees what he's doing and doesn't draw any attention to it. Leggett's a smart guy, though. He does see it, so he gets a moment after she leaves that he knows the same information that she does. This is all while we're having this interesting verbal sparring of theirs. They're not falling in love in the middle of this. He is trying to soften her up for sure, but she's not having it. In this conversation, he says that he's going to try to buy her off, and then if that doesn't work, then he's going to try to win her. And she says, well, that's reverse, and of what it usually is. And he said, well, would it work? And she goes, no, you better try to buy me off. Yeah. He does tell her right away that she's attractive and she is. So we sense that we know what he's after, but we're going to find out a little bit differently later on. And so she goes home for the night, walks up the front door because she said she wants to give them something to think about. The police are waiting in her apartment for her. Ferris is there. There's that beautiful hallway shot. Oh my gosh, with that amazing glass and window. 
really, really interesting. And he tells her some really important information that she also didn't know. This is a big deal. Frank has a really bad heart. He is very sick. He's in danger, not just from the mob. She tells them when they're first searching the apartment that he just likes to take tablets and different things. She doesn't know that they're actually for something. So she's shaken because this is big information that her husband has kept from her. Absolutely. I want to stop here for just a second and talk about the cinematographer. This was Hal Moore. We mentioned that amazing hallway shot. He was born and raised in San Francisco, so he knew the terrain for sure. He is, among other things, the creator of the lens that achieved deep focus. That's when you can see things in the fore, the middle, and the background in the same definite focus. Pretty amazing innovation. And then if you're paying attention as you watch this, it's easy not to if you're watching a YouTube version, for example, is how much he was able to blend studio footage, location shooting, soundstage work all into one image that is practically seamless. So we don't know that we're looking at different landscapes at the same time. We don't know that the people in the background are actually just a rear projection. It's pretty astounding stuff, especially the car scenes. So pay attention to that the next time you watch it. Can't even imagine inventing a lens. What you have to know and how smart you have to be to do something yeah. like that. It's amazing. Yes, okay. The next day she goes out and is on the search again. We get to see a lot of really amazing shots of the city in this day. And this is when we go back to kind of this being a simple story. The whole thing takes place in this night and this day. That's it. Just a short yeah, time frame. Less than 48 hours for all of this to unfold. And she goes to the department store where he works that she's never been to before. I'm going to go back for one second yeah. because I, as a film lover, I can't go past this guy without mentioning him. Yeah. And this is Dr. Holler, played by Stephen Jaray. Wonderful actor in something like 200 films. I love him in In a Lonely Place, Gilda. I just watched him in So Dark the Night. Check out anything else that he did. There's a whole lot of stuff to go out there for. He was a Hungarian actor who specialized in playing sort of immigrant parts, small roles. He was in a lot of film noir. So Dark the Night, he actually has the starring role, which was very odd for him. He's usually the, a background player, typically. And he gives that information to her to make it more serious how bad Frank's heart is. And also, very importantly, that Frank didn't go around bad-mouthing her to other people, which is something that she is was sort of convinced of. Yeah, I really love this scene because... She keeps going on about how she is the hypertension and she's the cause of this. And he keeps saying, I don't know. I don't want to know about your personal life. Here's the facts. Yeah. I, I like that we have this character that's like, I don't want to get involved in your business. And like you said, we find out what she thinks is going on isn't. Absolutely. Something that she clearly has feared, I think, at least at first. And so that's a little bit of a comfort and then we do get to the department store that he's been working in. And it's amazing to me that he makes the mannequins. Yeah. It's not... It's a lost art. Yeah. And they look like her. They do. She sees one. This feeds right back into this insecurity that she has that, oh, this is how he sees you. Because the mannequin doesn't have the most pleasant of expressions on its face. It's the cold, remote... Eleanor, and she's convinced that this is how he sees her. And we find out a little bit later on that that's not quite it. But at the same time, that's an aspect of her character. And she's angry about it. And there's probably some anger at herself, too. I think there's some dawning of that. His department store co-worker is the also great John Quaylen, always one of my favorites. He was in a lot of John Ford films. He's in one of my favorite Maisie installments. That was a series that Anne Southern did. She did 10 Maisie films. He has a great part in one of those. I love these smaller roles go to these actors with these really distinct, interesting voices. So again, they take this opportunity to do something cool with every part. Yeah, I made a note about him, just how much I love that character. He was so nice and so earnest. And like you said, all these small parts stand out. They don't blend together. You don't forget them. It's like they said, there are no small parts, just small actors. <laughs> yeah. And he is there to give her some important information as well. He talks about all these stories that Frank would regale them with. 
there again things that she didn't know anything about. Maybe she didn't care to hear about it. Maybe he didn't think she would. Maybe he didn't give her credit for it. And so he never tried. We're not sure. But we also know that the mail arrives and that letter is not there. Maybe it'll be there this afternoon. We're not sure. There's also a great little bit where the girl who has the mail comes in and is talking about Frank's the only one that will listen to her sing. Yeah. Then she goes, oh, I have a crush on that guy. (laughs) Also a role cast by Ann Sheridan. So she leaves disappointed. Leggett finds her. Yeah, he's waiting for her. The cops have put a female detective on her trail now, and so Leggett helps her with a little bit of a taxi chase, kind of get away from them. And we know that the cops are essentially using this heart medication as a way to lure Frank back. They know it's something that he can't live without. They have put a stop on filling any prescriptions for that, which thankfully they can't do things like that oh my nowadays. God. Pretty terrible move on their part, yeah. And they said that if he won't come in, then he'll just die. Great, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Movie over. They were so worried about keeping him alive the night before, and now they're like, oh. Well. Worried in quotes, yeah. Yeah. They need to get their mobster to trial for sure, but, uh, you know. Maybe this guy is expendable at this point. Yeah, only witness, but we don't need him. Now, Dan Leggett here keeps pulling his weight because he intercepted that letter before hers because he did see the info at the Oriental Roof Garden. It has got an important clue as to how to find him. This is a beautiful part. It's the place like the one where I first lost you. That still sits with me. That still lives with me to hear that line. And that goes back again to one of the things that I mentioned earlier that impressed me about this is how he is the more romantic and sentimental character because she's going, I don't know what he's talking about. I don't remember this, which fuels their whole search for the day, going around to all the places where they've had arguments in the city to see if he might be at one of those. Yeah, and I still love that we're, at least to my mind, on her side. Doesn't have her own poetic nature, for example. It's that it can be easy to fall back on that if you haven't given your all in the marriage. He is equally as responsible for where they are as she is. This is the point where Leggett and Eleanor have a quarrel and she's talking about she's met these people that know more about her husband than she does and all these men are telling her what to do and she makes a comment about the all-wise male. Yeah, I've had enough of the all-wise male. And this is after a really brutal comment of hers that he's saying, your husband is asking you to admit your marriage is a failure and that you don't understand him. And that's what she comes back with. Thank you, Anne Sheridan. It's also at this point, we're 37 minutes into the movie, and she asks people what they call him other than Leggett, the newspaper man. And he says, people call me Danny Boy. Yeah. Now, this is a very important moment. We're roughly halfway through the film. The film's very short. It seems like because of all this softening up that he's doing and that he is admittedly a charming, handsome guy and her husband's gone, that we might be pitching for a bit of a romance here in another film that might have happened. And that's when everything is turned on its ear and we know, she doesn't know, but we know he is the killer. So she is inadvertently helping the killer find her husband so that he can get rid of the only witness. Yes. And they go back to the Oriental Roof Garden and the, the two performers are there and they're asking to say anything else when he was here. Anything else you can tell us? And they say, maybe check the bar across the street because that's where he went. The girl looks at Leggett and goes, you look familiar. I know you from somewhere. Oh, it's that picture that Frank drew last night. It looked a lot like a guy like you. Susie has just signed her death warrant, and she doesn't know it yet. She's got that picture in her dressing room. She's not going to give it to him. She should probably keep it for the police. Yes. So the clock is ticking for Susie. They head across the street to the bar where Frank has painted this really cool mural behind the bar. This is where we have this great discussion with the bartender where... He talks about how moody and strange Frank was and how that it wouldn't be easy to live with him. Yeah, absolutely. It's totally wonderful. And it's got an important clue on that painting as well. It was backdated 
to a very important date for the both of them. It was on Frank's birthday. I don't know if did they say exactly how many. Years I think before. it was 1947. Okay. I believe, which would have been about three years. So talking about how he painted himself alone in the picture, he talks about how warmly Frank talks about her. If he had seen the look on her face that the bartender was seeing now, that he would have painted her in the picture with him. Yeah, and it gives her the sense that Frank does still love her they're not so far apart that they can't get back together which i think gives her the hope then sometimes giving you hope awakens in you your own hope Mm -hmm. that doesn't make any sense i'm following you okay probably other people too will too even if it didn't make complete verbal sense and so she's starting to realize that things might not be as bad between them as what she had been thinking Yeah, so we've got to keep looking. We've got to find Frank. This is incredibly important, more so than ever. While she's talking to the bartender, Leggett says, oh, you'll get more information from him if I'm not here. I'm going to go make a phone call, which he doesn't do. He goes across the street and throws Susie off the balcony. Which we don't see. This is very important. So we don't see that take place. He's gone and then he's back with the picture. How that's beautifully communicated to us as they're leaving that bar, the fire escape pattern, shadow is a cross-legged face. He does go into the phone booth and rips the picture. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many just beautiful shots in this of things like that that show so much and there's so much emotion in them because you know what it means without having to show her death or anything like that. And a clue that they did get from the bartender was that Frank was asking when the resale shops opened the next morning. So they know that he's going to go try to change his clothes so that they can't identify him by his very unique, I'm using air quotes, trench coat and hat that every other man in the city wears. (laughs) He's going to try to blend in, go to the Army-Navy store, and blend in with the rest of the people on the waterfront. And this next section is so interesting. It's all of this canted angle work that reminds me so much of the lady from Shanghai. And that's not an accident because both Norman Foster and Ross Elliott, who plays Frank, were protégés of Orson Welles. Norman Foster trained with Orson Welles. He directed uh, a lot of Journey into Fear, pretty important. And then Ross Elliott got his start in the War of the Worlds broadcast with the Mercury Theater Company. Yeah, that's that's some big stuff there. They finally locate the store where he traded in his clothes and he got a cap and a peacoat, which everybody else near Fisherman's Wharf also wears yes so we're getting close to the end of the day they keep coming up with these dead ends and she decides to go home her her tail is finally caught up to her yeah they just can't locate him at the waterfront so she's going to need to keep going somehow so Mm -hmm. she does a bit of a fake out with ferris because ferris has grown attached to rembrandt the dog how could she not yeah and does a little bit of a trick to get him to the vet so she can get rid of ferris pick up Leggett again, back to the department store. I love that we see more of those mannequins. There's the weary, bitter, cynical Eleanor. There's the fresh, eager, hopeful Eleanor, which could probably describe a lot of these noir city dames, by the way. Well, and also most people in life. I mean, because shocking as it is, we're not all just one thing. We're not. An important factor here is that they're mermaids. And these, these mannequins are actually really beautiful. They are. This triggers in her a very important memory of a day that they had on the beach where he did a sand sculpture of her as a mermaid and the waves came up and washed it away and he goes, I've lost you. Yeah. And so she realizes that that's where he is. He's at the beach at this amusement park. And so they head there, which... One of the things we found on the DVD is that this amusement park has been completely demolished. And so, I mean, it's a beautiful stretch of beach now, but it was just kind of sad to think about that you couldn't actually go there and see it. Yeah. They head there. By this point, oh, we skipped the body. Right. That's a little bit of a red herring because the body washes up there. They take Eleanor to the coroner's office to identify it, and she faints. It's not him. So that's gone. We know Frank is still alive. And this next section is really 
us hurtling towards the end. This all takes place in the amusement park. It's a lengthy section, but we're at the definite end of the film. Her and Leggett separate. It all goes, like you said, it's hurtling it so fast. So she and Leggett are together. It's his idea first to get kind of a bird's eye view to Mm -hmm. see if we can spot Frank. He puts her on a roller coaster to do this. She certainly doesn't want to do that. And my favorite part of this is when he asks her, are you sure that you want to start over? And she does. And she asks him the same. And he says, basically, it's too late now to change my profession. We understand what that means. She doesn't quite know yet, but she's about to figure it out. So he still needs to get the story and the money so that Frank can get away. They are still on this mission of, he's not going to testify, we're getting out of here. They set up a meeting place, which is under the roller coaster, which first thing, never follow people to dark, creepy, dangerous Under boardwalks? No. Please no. No. And she goes down onto the beach to find Frank and is not there. It's the old ferry boat captain who's a friend of theirs. He tells him that he's loaned Frank his car so that he can get away. But for some reason, does he say why he came back? I don't remember. He, he, he was still planning to, to meet with her. He was just getting the car ready. Okay. Essentially, leaving it to the last possible second, hoping that she was going to show up in time. So they, they are reunited. Both are very happy about this. And she tells him she's set up this meeting for him, but they see the police. It's a very gentle love scene, their mm-hmm. reunitement. This is what we've waited for for an hour or so and it's happened and it's very gentle I think they're both a little skittish and concerned what's the other one feeling what's going to happen but they're ready to be together and get out of town together evading the cops at that point she is directing him to where Leggett has said he's going to be she'll bring the car around so he's going to go keep up this meeting Ferris is there with the cops so a lot of things are happening at the same time in terms of who's spotting who That's right. Leggett has left the meeting spot and he comes and he grabs her and says the police are here. So they go and get on the roller coaster to get away from the police because they will look for them there. Yeah. Which Anne Sheridan hated the roller coaster. She did. She had been hurt as a young child on a roller coaster, so she didn't want to get back on it, really. And it's pretty astounding to see our heroine immobilized on this roller coaster alone after... Leggett has revealed inadvertently that he's the killer by saying information that only the killer and the police and she had known, which was that Frank was shot at. He walks away. She's left with this knowledge to try to somehow get Frank's attention on the screaming roller coaster while she knows Leggett is after him. Leggett's plan is he's going to cause Frank to have a heart attack. Because they catch up. Frank knows right away he recognizes this is a shooter. Leggett doesn't take that opportunity to shoot him. He has a gun. No, he's going to make him kill himself. So he puts his head very close to the roller coaster track. It's one of those, even though you know that nothing's going to happen to them, just the thought of that for me was so powerful, the, the danger of This it. part was actually a set that they ended up building because they didn't feel like they had enough of the roller coaster stuff, so they couldn't film all this at the amusement park. So they built all of those wood pilings, the framework of it, on a set. Wow. Pretty amazing. Yeah. That, because I never would have guessed that that wasn't... Me either. ...the real roller coaster. Her ride finally comes to an end and she races down and there's a she has a gunshot yes. and there's a body floating in the water yes and at this point police officer walks up to her and says i'm sorry i had to do it yeah but yay we find out it's not frank it's leggett yeah bye danny boy he's faced out in the water dead as a doornail and she is able to reunite with frank and Rembrandt's there. Yeah. We end on a picture of Laughing Sal cackling <laughs> away. The incredibly creepy, gross, animatronic amusement park gypsy character. Yeah. That Ugh. her laughter just through all of those scenes yes. heightens that tension and just Very kind much. of puts you on edge. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's a short, beautiful movie. Billed as, in some respects, a probing study of modern marriage. Ooh, yeah, it is. 
there's some thrills in there too. But yeah, it they is. are. It's it was interesting to think of a film noir being marketed that way and unfortunately it didn't do well it did not make much money and so when fidelity pictures folded universal didn't carry the copyright anymore for it and so it fell into the public domain and thankfully now we have the beautiful copy that we have so this is an interesting film noir because it has a happy ending whereas a lot of them don't they don't yeah it still ends in murder yeah multiple (laughs) murders (laughs) <laughs> One thing that I thought was interesting was that there are two times, two fake bodies. Mm-hmm. There's twice that she thinks that Frank is dead. Yes. Twice in one day to think that somebody you love has been killed. That's a that's a lot. Yeah, at two very important points. One, when she's just found him again yes. in her heart. And the second, when she is so close to actually having him physically there. And I also wanted to mention real quick how much I love the costumes in this. Yes. Again, back to that idea of simplicity. They are simple. She wears pretty much the same thing throughout. There's not a lot of these costume changes. Everybody looks like real people. Mm -hmm. There seems to be such an obsession in modern movies of everybody looking perfect all the time and having all these different outfits. And I just loved this and the coat that she wears and how all the police look like they're actually working people and mm-hmm. the throwing them off with the the coat and the hat that all of the sailors and seamen wear. I was just very pleased with the costume design. In this. Yeah, that's that was Anne Sheridan's personal costumer as well. So clearly you have somebody that you have a history with who knows how to clothe you. And I'm sure the budget was very, very small. And so these costumes are, were probably bought basically off the rack or what you already had built in the within the resources of the studio to a degree. But yeah, this isn't any kind of big major production where they're going to have all of this intricate work. This is stuff that you would be wearing. So what grade would you give this? We do letter grades A through F. I'm giving it an A+. Plus. And why? All joking aside, I definitely give this an A for sure. This film didn't have to be great. The people who set out to make this didn't have to make something great, and they did. This was through their talent and their hard work and Sheridan believing in this. Norman Foster had no sort of cachet. He still doesn't. The writers would do some of their better work later on, even. We've got people who weren't huge stars like Dennis O'Keefe and Robert Keefe, but who were to be relied upon to do great work. It's refreshing in a film noir, which is a genre that can be often known for predatory relationships and one-sided love affairs or sexual obsession, to have a story about a rediscovery of affection and love that's been ground into indifference and resentment and comes back from it. It's amazing to think about all the work that Anne Sheridan did. We talked about how she was a de facto co-producer on this who did not get credit for it. It's at a time when that was not common, and it represents her trying to take control of her career in a new phase in her life. The rest of the cast and crew did amazing work. We talked about how more Boris Levin, the art director, would do things like The Sound of Music and The Andromeda Strain. Does characteristic amazing work here too i agree with everything that you've said and i would also give this movie an a there's so many things about it that didn't have to be good but are Mm -hmm. when making an independent film you always have so many issues and things to work with and lack of money and and they were able to make something very very good despite the fact that especially at that time making an independent film would have been even more difficult than it is nowadays and they still made something wonderful they made a superior film noir and it was all but lost not because of the quality of it because of these other factors and maybe the world wasn't quite ready for it or it didn't have the same distribution means that something else would but we now have the opportunity to come back to it and celebrate it does this movie pass the Bechtel test if we're talking about it in the strictest possible terms I don't think it does but you can't have a film about a woman trying to find her husband in order to protect him and help him with this complicated relationship that they have. I don't think it could still pass the test because he still is this character living through her, reflected through her. What do you think? I don't 
think it does. There are three other female characters in it, but I don't think any of them have names. Susie is the only one who has a name. Oh, so there are four female characters. Okay, so technically, yes, I do think that this can pass. Okay. Does it matter? I don't think it does. Based on, strictly speaking, what this story is, what they're going for, I don't think that it matters. And also, it's fascinating that Anne Sheridan is in all but three scenes in this movie. We've had discussions before about how a movie can still pass the Bechdel test, but still be an exceedingly sexist movie. It's true. This is a wonderful movie that, while it may barely pass, is still a great movie celebrating these female characters and characters that women didn't get to play very often. In this case, yeah, it definitely doesn't matter, at least in my opinion. Got it. One question we ask about why is this important for us to talk about here on Fatal Films as highlighting a movie or a story made famous by female identifying characters. This movie was written by a man, directed by a man. The short story, from what I've heard, doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to the actual product, but that was written by a woman. Why do you think this is an important one for us? Because it wasn't just these men acting solo. This was all the work, the driving force of Anne Sheridan making this happen. This is her movie. Nobody would question that whatsoever, having seen it. And everyone worked in concert together to make this. I talked about people rewriting their own dialogue and Sheridan contributing to that the others act the other actors contributing to that to make something more than just the sum of its parts it's incredibly important to look at this period too and find these interesting roles because there are a lot of them out there and we just don't quite know enough or some of the films have been relegated to history and there's a lot there to explore so I don't want to just put things in one box even though I've done that a little bit with film noir I don't want to just put it in the box of, well, the women were only this or they only did this. That was not the case. So let's go find these interesting examples of these other things happening. If somebody liked this, what would you recommend they read or watch next? I'm going to pump again for Ida Lupino and The Hitchhiker, which she directed. She directed it. She took over the film from a man who was too ill to continue. So this is a big deal. She was already, she was already at this point a very famous actress had been working for decades at this point but still she took it over that's a big deal that was her launching point it's got the great noir folks Edmund O'Brien Frank Lovejoy William Talman who you may know from Perry Mason it's about two fishing buddies who pick up a mysterious hitchhiker during a trip to Mexico the difference here is that a lot of the action is outdoors which is not characteristic of the noir we think of them being in tight places but we do have that characteristic claustrophobia in a lot of the car scenes. So go find something directed by a great female actress and director of the time that you may not have known that she had done and explore all of Ida Lupino's work. And then explore all the women filmmakers who were working at that time because there were a few, even though we talked about the small number, there were still some amazing folks out there, So especially around the world. So go explore all of them. But I really want everybody to check out The Hitchhiker. And that was from 1953, just a few years after this film. So my recommendation is Black Angel from 1946. It is about a boozy songwriter, Dan Duryea, who helps a woman, June Vincent, prove her husband did not kill his lover. And I stumbled upon that one very recently and really enjoyed it. And I feel like some of the relationship between the main characters in both have some parallels and I think it's a would be a fun comparison to do with Woman on the Run. Awesome. So what do you have going on at the Magic Lantern next? We're just getting all of our shows ready to go for 2019. Our next episode is going to be on Happy Go Lucky, which is a great film, especially for this podcast, but doesn't have anything fatal in it. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's got the fun part, but not the fatal part. But you need to check it out. Everybody needs to check out Happy Go Lucky. It's wonderful. I have not heard of that one, so I'm excited. And where can we find you on social media? You can find us at lantern underscore cast on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and pretty much every single other platform by just looking for the Magic Lantern podcast. 
You can find our podcast on any podcatcher. So we're out there. Thank you very much again for taking your time to be with us today. I'm very excited to talk about this one with you. Thanks for having me. I hope everybody runs out and watches Woman on the Run. I hope so too. Links to the Magic Lantern podcast, the Noir City Film Festival, the Film Noir Foundation, Eddie Muller's website, and also a link to the Magic Lantern episode where they got to interview Eddie will be up on our show notes. Anytime we talk about something, we will link it in our show notes. So be sure to check out our website at fatalfemspodcast.com. We also have a Facebook page and you can find us on Twitter and we don't have an Instagram yet but keep an eye out for that. Make sure to let me know if there's anything that Lacey and I should do while we are in San Francisco, and y'all have a wonderful day. Happy Fatal Friday. Here is our clue for our next episode. We all dream of a great love affair. I just dreamed a bit harder. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Fems. To keep up with us, please follow us on Twitter at Fatal underscore Fems. Have a suggestion or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemspodcast at gmail.com. While you're at it, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode because if you didn't, we'll find you. Thanks for listening.